Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, the Florida Historical Society 2022 Public History Forum and the 33rd Annual Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings Society Conference are being presented together May 19th through 21st in Gainesville. The keynote speaker is Ann McCutcheon, author of The Life She Wished to Live, a biography of Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings, author of The Yearling. That is what she was looking for, or what she noticed when she was there, how people, place, soil, plants, weather, it's all connected. We'll discuss the 1968 teacher strike. The statewide walkout of 27,000 teachers on February 19, 1968, was the nation's first statewide teacher strike. And historic preservation efforts in downtown Jacksonville. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings lived and worked in rural Florida near Gainesville. She wrote about her experiences in books including the 1939 Pulitzer Prize winning novel The Yearling and the popular Cross Creek. Anne McCutcheon is author of the book The Life She Wished to Live, a biography of Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings, published by W.W. W. Norton and Company. Like many people, McCutcheon discovered Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings' work as a child. In the fourth grade in Pompano Beach, McNabb Elementary School, my fourth grade teacher read The Yearling to the class um, over the course of months, I suppose, because she uh, she read a few pages every day after after lunch. We would come back from lunch and she'd read The Yearling to us. So that was my first exposure. McCutcheon is a frequent visitor to Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings' farmhouse, which is now preserved in a state park at Cross Creek. McCutcheon says that visiting the property makes her feel closer to Marjorie. Over the course of the research, I, I went to the farm many, many times. As you know, I attended Titusville High School, and one of my high school classmates has a lake house in Keystone Heights, which is not far from Gainesville and, and the creek. And so very often when I went to Gainesville for research, I'd also go out to Keystone Heights and uh, either Sandy would be there or I would have the, the house to myself. So I just, I went to the creek every time and I've taken the tour many times and taken friends on the tour. And then we often end up at the Yearling restaurant <laughs> afterwards. So that was a, a way to introduce others to it. But being there by myself or just with a small group of people, I increasingly felt closer to Marjorie and, and, and the life she lived there. It, it has been beautiful, all of it. Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings was a gifted writer. She was also an alcoholic who could be difficult to get along with. 
Anne McCutcheon wanted to find out more about this complex woman and discovered the extensive collection of Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings' papers at the University of Florida. When I first called Flo Turcott, who is the archivist in, in charge of the collection, I called her on the phone and said I was interested in coming to see the materials. She, she just shot back, oh, it's one-stop shopping here. And she was so right. I mean, there were other things I had to research and to go dig out, but there was so much material there. Uh, one could simply write the biography from those materials. Um, I found more, but still, it was massive. And when I first saw it all, I was overjoyed <laughs> because there would be so much to work with. It didn't bother me at all that it would take time and, and effort. It was a treasure trove. Rawlings was a prolific letter writer who corresponded with her agent, Max Perkins, both of her husbands, and fellow writers, including Ernest Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and Zora Neale Hurston. Well, thousands of letters, literally uh, more than 4,000 letters to and from her. And so with that much material and many letters, I could get a sense, uh, especially with her the people she kept in contact with on a regular basis of ongoing, unfurling, developing friendships. And the kinds of things she shared ranged from how her ducks and petunias are doing, you know, <laughs> in, this, in the spring, to what she's reading. Conversations about um, books she had read and she and her correspondent had read. That was actually a hard part for me to uh, slim down. I got engrossed at one point with everything she had read, and I was riveted by these conversations. But then I realized you can't put every book in there, and, and some of these books are, are unfamiliar to people now. Uh, so that was a challenge for me. But that's all to say that the range of subjects was um, was very broad, and she was just as excited about I don't know, spring vegetables emerging as she was about reading another political book uh, around World War II. Anne McCutcheon also turned to Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings' autobiographical manuscripts for insight while writing the biography, The Life She Wished to Live. The one that she left behind, um, Blood of My Blood, which Anne Blythe edited and was published by the University of Florida Press, was, was essential to me. I put that, that together with information I got from a historian in Brooklyn, where she grew up, who could help me verify times and places and look at her book and say, well, what, what can we say is fact? Because she wrote it supposedly as a novel, or she tried to pass it off as a novel in a contest, but it is a memoir, and it's got a particular edge to it, coming to terms with her mother, so that has to be figured in. It's very um, challenging to look at something someone has written about their life and detect what the need of the document is, why she wrote that, what was driving it, and then from that to extract what could be fact or what was a real driver for this individual that is worth depending on and, and reporting in a biography. Rawlings Cross Creek is a semi-autobiographical book about her life in Florida and also informed McCutcheon's work. It certainly did. There were um, a couple of uh, stories um, from that 
like Hyacinth Drift, which we, you know, so many of us love, that um, was an account of a trip she took down or up <laughs> the St. John's River with Jesse Smith. And it's a gorgeous piece. But I also contrasted that with uh, in an interview someone had done with Jesse years later about that trip. And so I had Marjorie's lyrical well-organized uh, voice and some comments by Desi to put together and to uh, re refine the, the account of that trip. But Cross Creek is just a wonderful book of um, creative nonfiction, as we say, personal essays, personal episodes that ring, ring with truth. Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings didn't come from rural Florida, but immersed herself in the cracker culture she wrote about. This fit in with larger literary and journalistic trends of the period to preserve American folk culture. Anne McCutcheon. She was writing at a time in the 30s and, and uh, early 40s about that particular place, rural Florida, which had not been documented in literature so much. Um, WPA writers were going down into all nooks and crannies of the South, um, and some of them very wonderful writers um, being assigned or earning their living that way. But there was a move afoot after World War I to seek out the creeks and hollers <laughs> that hadn't been exposed and uh, to gather that culture. The Library of Congress was involved. Uh, so she was part of a trend a movement even, but nowhere did I see in her correspondence anything about that. She never said in writing anywhere I could find, I'm going to join this movement or I mean to wring stuff out of that place. I mean, nothing uh, that spoke of a journalist or a culture historian going into that place. I only saw the need to write literature. So it's interesting, but she was of the time. She was of the times. Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings did express racist views typical of the 1930s and 40s. Her friendship with fellow writer Zora Neale Hurston expanded her thinking and helped her to grow in that regard. It certainly did. She held the conventional views of the time, of white views of the time. I wouldn't call her a Southerner exactly. She wasn't really a Southerner. She sort of became one, kind of. But she held conventional views. She had a staff of African-American um, neighbors who helped on the farm and uh, on, even served her breakfast in bed on occasion. So when she met Zora, it was what I like to say, the come to Jesus moment. We said, oh, here is a person of color who is a fabulous writer. She is my intellectual equal. Oh, and so the sky opened up for her, that friendship. And uh, it took a couple of years. I sort of tracked it through correspondence with her husband, uh, Norton Baskin, of how she gradually came to see what her views had been and what they needed to shift to. And she became an outspoken um, supporter of civil rights it was a wonderful friendship, wonderful moment in her life. Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings' writing demonstrates a cosmic consciousness that was built upon at Cross Creek. It was an idea that she had encountered as, as a college student, and that phrase had just been invented maybe mm, 10 years before she went to the University of Wisconsin and was applied to Whitman, for example, and it really fit her. She was not religious in a conventional sense, although she attended church as a child, but she latched onto that idea in college and wrote a college essay about it. There's a, a fragment of that essay that I um, was able to dig up. 
And so from that point, age 18, 19, she saw, began to see more and more how everything is connected, everything, life on earth, um, even (laughs) things that aren't living on earth are somehow connected to one another. And that idea she carried to Cross Creek. And that is what she was looking for, or what she noticed when she was there, how people, place, soil, plants, weather, it's all connected. And the idea of that web runs throughout all of her work. Anne McCutcheon is author of the book, The Life She Wished to Live, a biography of Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings, published by W.W. Norton and Company. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Registration information for the Florida Historical Society 2022 Public History Forum and the 33rd Annual Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings Society Conference is at myfloridahistory.org. The combined conference will feature panel discussions on Florida history and culture, tours of historic sites and museums, and much more. Find more information at myfloridahistory.org. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. For the union makes us strong. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project and editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, topics such as book banning and how history should be taught are being debated as political issues right now. Unfortunately, contentious debates about education are not new. Most of us think about education in schools from the perspective of our own experiences as children. As adults, however, we know that education has been and still is a source of social and political friction. What will be taught, how it will be taught, who will be taught, and how education will be funded roil the public discourse continuously. Beginning with Reconstruction and continuing through the next century, Southern states fought to prevent the education of black and white children in the same classrooms. More than a matter of spatial proximity, the separation of children by race permitted a two-tiered public education that operated against black economic and social advancement in a world where education increasingly determined social and economic status. Although the U.S. Supreme Court ruled school segregation unconstitutional in 1954, Southern states delayed school integration until the late 1960s and early 1970s. Battles also broke out over the teaching of evolution and prayers in this classroom. Implementing educational standards for teachers proved to be a lengthy and contentious process. Books in libraries, school curriculum, the drawing of school district boundaries, consolidation of schools, and even school start times also prompted fierce public debate. Now, Connie, the Florida Historical Quarterly has published some insightful articles about education. Indeed, it has. 
As you would expect, most of the articles focus on school integration issues, but they often approach the history in unexpected and interesting ways. The Quarterly has published several articles on sports, race, and education. More recently, we have published articles on the long-term effects of the closing of schools in black communities and the impact of race in higher education. Recently, I was reminded of a prize-winning article we published that looks at Florida education as a labor issue, written by Jody Baxter-Knoll, at that time a Ph.D. candidate at Georgia State University. The article is titled, We Are Not Hired Help, The 1968 Florida Teacher Strike and the Formation of Modern Florida. The statewide walkout of 27,000 teachers on February 19, 1968, was the nation's first statewide teacher's strike. Although Florida's schools were not yet integrated, black educators and their union, the Florida State Teachers Association, joined white teachers and the Florida Education Association in the walkout. As Noel argues, the strike occurred at a pivotal moment in Florida's history. That is, the transition of the state from rural to urban political control and the implementation of a business efficiency model for government. The election of Republican Claude Kirk to the governorship in 1966 highlighted the transformative political potential. As Noel notes, Kirk recognized the importance of improvements in education to attracting jobs to the state. Florida can't just live on sunshine, he said in a campaign speech. To convince men with payrolls to come to Florida, I will tell them education is moving from 37th in the nation to first in the nation. In his centering of education, Kirk opened the door to public discourse on the state of Florida schools, a discourse in which the teachers' union and increasing teacher militancy would play an important role. How did Kirk implement his plan to focus on education reform? Kirk proposed to improve education by trimming the fat with no new funding and, importantly for him, no new taxes to pay for educational improvements. Knowles summarized Kirk's position in this way. By viewing education as an investment in Florida's future, Kirk promoted the new conservative belief that an involved government could improve business climates but his no-new tax platform required him to push for tax efficiency-based reform rather than an increase in funding. While teachers supported the governor's call for educational improvement, they decidedly opposed the trim-the-fat approach. Decades of poor funding did not enamor them to the idea that more trimming would meet the needs. In May 1967, after voting to impose sanctions against the hiring of teachers from out of state and censuring Kirk and the state legislature, teachers met in Orlando and demanded a special session of the legislature to address education issues. Kirk responded with a 30-minute televised program in which he agreed to appoint a 30-member citizen panel to discuss the issues and make recommendations for the legislature. State leaders defended the teachers, pointing out that their concerns were for outdated textbooks, decrepit buildings, and lack of air conditioning, not salaries, as Kirk had claimed. Kirk capitulated and agreed to a special session of the state legislature in January 1968, hoping to avoid a walkout. 
when the Citizen Committee of Businessmen called for a tax increase to fund education, Kirk had the cover he needed. He agreed, but his plan provided for less than half of the increase to go for funding education. In addition, he planned to strip teachers of their autonomy and place businessmen in positions of administrative authority, replacing traditional educational administrators. Finally, increases in salary were to be based on merit, and teachers would lose continuing contracts. At the close of the special session on February 19th, the teachers walked out. The most active counties in the strike were Dade, Hillsborough, Pinellas, and Duval counties. But all counties participated except Taylor County. Connie, the teacher strike was not entirely successful, but it did have an impact, right? It did. Teachers found support and inspiration in other social movements of the period, including the civil rights movement. Indeed, the strike brought black and white teachers together in what Noel characterized as a heightened social awareness. The strike had strong support from Florida's NAACP and black newspapers in the state. The strike failed to garner similar support from whites who fell back on demands for law and order. As Noel concludes, despite their best efforts, Florida teachers failed to convince a skeptical public that they had their children's best interests at heart. And Kirk effectively shifted the debate to one over union control within the state. Moreover, he used gendered language to imply that by striking, teachers who were predominantly women were abandoning their social role. Finally, the public perception of teaching as a low or non-skilled position enabled Kirk to hire unqualified substitutes and minimize disruption of class instruction. Three weeks after the walkout began, it ended, with Kirk able to claim that he kept the schoolhouse doors open, making only minor concessions to the teachers. And yet, Noel claims that the strike shifted the ground for public service employees in important ways. In his words, the teachers were successful in staving off calls for merit pay and anti-tenure policies. Their battle against Kirk began as a call for improvements in Florida's education system, but it also became a battle over exactly how education would operate in the rapidly changing state. Most importantly, the teachers also forced the legislature to address the issue of public sector bargaining rights. The writing of a new Florida constitution in 1968 provided a provision for public employees to have the right to collectively bargain, but not to strike. In 1969 and again in 1973, the Florida Supreme Court affirmed the collective bargaining rights. In making these gains, Noel asserts that the 1968 teacher strike transformed Florida into a modern state. And yet the debates about education continue. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers. 
The Florida Trust for Historic Preservation is working to save endangered historic buildings in downtown Jacksonville. Holly Baker is archivist for the Library of Florida History in Cocoa and Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society. Each year, the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation presents the 11 to save list of the most threatened historic properties and resources across Florida. Downtown Jacksonville National Register Historic District was featured on the 11 to save list. Ennis Davis is an urban planning consultant and the chair of the 11 to save committee with the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation. Jacksonville was established a planet as a city in 1822 and incorporated in 1832. After the Civil War, it became one of Florida's largest ports, primarily because it was a location where the railroads first uh, connected into Florida from the north. And from this railroad hub is kind of where railroad south to Miami, Key West, Tampa, all that kind of grew out of that. So even today, Jacksonville as an industrial logistics center is still Florida's premier center. Over 80% of the state's freight and rail traffic still cross through downtown every day. Jacksonville's architectural history is unique due to a 1901 fire that burned most of the buildings in the downtown area. After the fire of 1901, architects from New York, Henry John Clutho and M.H. Hubbard, helped rebuild downtown Jacksonville, ushering in an architectural renaissance in the city. Jacksonville was the first major urban metropolis, I guess, in the state of Florida. So it's got a, a historic district of buildings that you really don't see in a concentrated collection across the rest of the state from a variety of architectural styles that date back to the late 19th century. Prior to being on the list or earlier this year, there had been a number of demolitions. Largely, it was kind of assumed that new is better than old. So even though these were unique buildings, many had been abandoned for a number of years. So they were being raised for parking lots, new developments that didn't have as much architectural character or density and quality as, as what was built 100 years ago. 56 blocks of downtown Jacksonville are currently listed on the National Register of Historic Places as a historic district, but many of the historic buildings are vulnerable to demolition and decay. Advocates from community groups and organizations in Jacksonville have been urging public officials to retool local preservation and adaptive reuse policies to save and rehabilitate the iconic historic buildings that still exist downtown. This has been something that built up in the community where every project that was announced, you had local organizations, downtown advocates, just preservationists, people speaking up because they did really want to see this unique history and environment saved and, and adaptively reused. So city council unanimously approved the modifications to the downtown um, Historic Preservation Revitalization Trust Fund Program, which basically provides a higher level of public tax incentives for those looking to restore existing buildings. The adaptive reuse projects taking place in historic downtown Jacksonville are saving irreplaceable historic structures and giving them new life. Ennis Davis. Really what it took was the community to rise up and voice an appreciation for the history and character of this unique environment. 
And once the community got to a point and awareness was being raised across the state about what was happening within the city with this downtown, that gave political leaders the cover to create an economic tool that would help preservation in a financial way. But just through that advocacy now, fairly quickly, buildings that have been sitting vacant and abandoned for 20 years are rapidly being snapped up and proposed for redevelopment. To learn more about the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation and the 11 to Save list, go to floridatrust.org. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week and find us anytime at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Holly Baker and Connie Lester. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.